Are we ready, panel? Here we go. Hello, everyone. My name is Reed Hamilton. I'm a reporter with the Texas Tribune. On behalf of the Texas Tribune, I am very happy to welcome you to the fourth annual Texas Tribune Festival and to this panel specifically, which is titled, What's Next for Closing the Gaps? Uh, this, the panel will be about 60 minutes, and it'll be 45 minutes to 40 minutes of uh, us talking up here and ask questions yourselves. Either of them might keep your questions short and try to keep them, and uh, we should be good with that. And we'll, we're going to do the same thing. We have a panel after this for that, and then there's another panel later. I'll be here for most of them. Uh, throughout, please keep your phone silent, but if you... Uh, want to tweet, the hashtag is hashtag TribuneFest. The tra track specific hashtag for this event is TTF Higher Ed. And so let's get introductions. Uh, joining me today, let's start at the end. There we have uh, Julia Garcia. President Garcia has recently wrapped up a historic 22-year run as president of the University of Texas at Brownsville. She was the university's first and only president. That university is transitioning into the as the head of the University of Texas Institute of the Americas, you can tweet at her at, at Juliet V. Garcia. Give her a little hand. <laughs> to her right, we have Woody Hunt, who is currently serving as chairman of the Texas Higher Education Coordinating Board's Higher Education Strategic Planning Committee. He's also a member of the Board of Directors for Complete College America and a foundation trustee for the College for All Texans Foundation. Previously, he was uh, Vice Chairman on the University of Texas System Board of Regents. Please welcome Mr. Hunt. <laughs> to his right, we have Senator Kel Seliger, who has represented Senate District 34 since 2004. In addition to chairing the Higher Education Committee, he is a member of the Finance, Natural Resources, and Open Government Committees. Before joining the legislature, he was served as Mayor of Amarillo for four terms, and you can tweet at Kay Seliger. Then we have John Sharp, who is the chancellor of the Texas A&M University System and has been since 2011. In past lives, he served in the Texas House, the State Senate, the Railroad Commission, and as comptroller. He was also previously a principal with Ryan and Company, a tax consulting firm. And we're happy he's joining us here today. Give him a hand. And we, to my immediate left, we have Commissioner Raymond Paredes, the uh, Texas Higher Education the states and the State Higher Education Executive Officers Association. Uh, previously, among many other things, he was a professor and a vice chancellor for academic development at the University of California, Los Angeles. All right. Oh, that sounds great. All right, let's get going. Uh, so the, the panel's called What's Next for Closing the Gaps. Uh, I assume, since you guys are so in the know, that uh, you guys know that Closing the Gaps is the state's statewide higher education plan, and I, the full name is Closing the Gaps by 2015. So as that suggests, uh, it's coming to a close, and there's a new plan being put in place. And uh, since the committee that uh, Mr. Hunt is heading up is focused on sort of coming up with what that new plan will look like. Uh, maybe you could start us off by giving us sort of a lay of the land. You know, what factors are you considering as you look forward for the state's statewide approach to higher education? 
Reeve, as, as we've uh, uh, started our planning, we've had six meetings now, and we're meeting on a, on a monthly basis, taking testimony from uh, experts within the state and, and, uh, and around the country. First thing we've really looked at is the existing plan, which came out in the fall of, of 2000. Uh, and it was very audacious, bold at the time, because it really identified the problem that we had then and we still have, and that's closing the educational attainment gaps, post-secondary attainment among different racial and ethnic groups in, in, in the state. The goal at that time was by 2015 to have 163,000 graduates that either had certificates of value, technical certificates, associate degrees, or bachelor's degrees. Uh, that goal was later raised to 210,000. That's on an annual basis. Well, by 2012, we were at 237,000, and today we're over 250,000. So we would say, well, that's a, that's a big win. Well, the other thing that happened that was not anticipated in closing the, the, the gaps 2015 was this hyper-competitive business environment that has been created in this state and the job creation machine, which is now importing, on average, about 90,000 uh, uh, new citizens that were educated in some other state or some other, other nation, uh, of that 90,000, over 80% have at least a bachelor's degree. So a huge, so we've got a, a, a educational system that is way outperforming what we thought we were going to be in, in 2000, and we're importing uh, a, a group of new citizens that we didn't expect at, at, at that time. That being said, the evidence today is the goals that we established at that time were too low. In fact, they were way too low. And the evidence for that is when you go to our, our workforce, our 25 to 64-year-olds, and you look at the educational, post-secondary educational attainment of that workforce, it's flat to down over that whole 40-year time period. And you'd say, well, maybe that's not too bad. We're almost as educated as we used to be. But when you decompose that data, you look at the oldest part of the workforce, you know, the, the part that we're in, uh, we're number three in the world and highly competitive. Uh, the United States and Canada, the, if we want to view ourselves as a, as a country, which we often do, and which is economically we're the 12th or 13th largest economy as a state in the, in, in the world, uh, we're number three in that, in that last 10 years. The problem is those people are all exiting. We look at the, the young, the 25 to 34-year-old, which is supposed to be the most technologically advanced and is the one that employers look, like, uh, look at when they invest in, and create new jobs, we're number 24. So what's really happened is a huge relative shift, an absolute decline, very small, about 1% over this 40 years, but a huge relative decline in the competitiveness of our, of our, of our workforce. So we've got 34% in the 25 to 34. The best data that we have today is about 65% of the new jobs in 2020, 65% will require some type of post-secondary education. So it's that gap that we're looking at at the, our strategic planning committee to try to answer the question of, of, of you know, what do we do next? And the, the underlying fundamental issue is the same issue that we had in 2000. That we're in a race between closing the gaps between our ethnic and racial groups and demographic change. And we're losing that, that race. Today, if you look at their population and you de decompose it on an ethnic and a racial standpoint, our Hispanic and African-American population is going forward into, or has uh, the existing population has a post-secondary credential at about 40, at 45% of the, of, the, of the Anglo population. 
You look at our pipeline of taking eighth graders in 2003, giving them four years to graduate from high school, another six to get any kind of credential. That, that number is 19.6%, but the Anglo portion of that number is 28, Hispanic and African American is 12. That's a 43% ratio. So whether you look at the existing population or you look at the pipeline, we have this huge gap that we're not closing anywhere close enough given the following factors, and then I'll, I'll, I'll turn it over. Birth to 24 in this state, 60% of the population is either African American or Hispanic. It's the highest concentration of those ethnicities of any state in, 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 in the United States. Our K through 12 system, 65% Hispanic and African American. And yet the pipeline has got them moving forward to those attainment rates at a rate 43% of the Anglo population. So we've got this huge disconnect between demographic change and the educational outputs of the different ethnic and, 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 and racial groups. And so that's the fundamental challenge that we're, we're asked, looking at, is how do we get to 60 or 65%, particularly that 25 to 34-year-old population within a reasonable period of time? Because if we don't, we essentially have, well, for example, today, Massachusetts at 55% of that younger group, or New York and Minnesota at 50%, and we're at 34%. We're with Mississippi, Alabama, Tennessee, Kentucky, Louisiana. So a group of states that we probably don't think that we want to compete with. We'd rather compete with uh, the Californias, the Minnesotas, the New Yorks uh, of the world. But that gap in education is a gap in income. And so you can just look at if you're at 50 or 55% have post-secondary, you can do complex skills. They pay higher wages. We can't do those complex skills. So that we have a future. If we don't have a change in closing the gaps, our incomes will be lower, uh, our, our educational levels will be lower, our income will, will, will be lower, we'll have, our tax receipts will be less, and our safety net expenditures will, will, will be higher. So to me, we've got to clear this is the public policy challenge of the state uh, and in any type of long-term measure. Well, and Commissioner, you been there at the coordinating board for most of closing the gaps. Can you make, maybe take us back and tell us sort of what was the mindset uh, behind the plan and so if we still have these gaps, what needs to change to sort of ramp things up? Well, Woody is right that we have a long way to go and we have a challenging environment in which to accomplish our ultimate goals of being a national and international leader in higher education. Uh, but I would characterize uh, closing the gaps, the, the plan that's going in next year, uh, a bit differently from from Woody. I don't. I think it was extraordinarily ambitious when it was launched in the year uh, 2000 because Texas was so far behind, and the decision was made, and I think the data justified this at the time, that uh, Texas was so far behind other states in overall higher education achievement, it was going to be a mighty struggle to get to parity with the 10 largest states, which was ultimately the goal. Uh, we uh, made a very dramatic improvement. For example, we have already reached our completion goal as of 2013. Uh, we're way over our completion goal and we'll be uh, probably at uh, 200 and, uh, 240, 250,000 by next year. But we have a very long way to go in some critical areas. Uh, we uh, are six-year graduation rates in Texas are not nearly as high as they should be. If you take Texas A&M University and the University of Texas at Austin 
out of the calculation because they have by far the highest six-year graduation rates in the state. Uh, the graduation rate for our other four-year universities is about 50, 51 percent. That's simply not uh, that's simply not uh, satisfactory. Uh, we're going to have to uh, uh, push harder, as uh, Woody pointed out, with uh, African American Latino students. But I think there's some there's some promising indications. African Americans right now participate at higher levels in higher education than any other ethnic group. The problem is they're not graduating. So what we have to do is we have to focus. We've had tremendous success in getting them access to higher education. Now we have to make sure that they graduate in significantly larger numbers. I, I happen to, um, uh, to believe that uh, the Latino population in Texas is going to follow the pattern of uh, immigrant groups in this country uh, for the past 150 years, and I believe that you're going to see a significant spike in Latino educational attainment in Texas, as we've already started to see in California uh, within over the next uh, 15 or 20 years, so that numbers for Latino educational attainment will go way up. But we have to do things differently in our next higher education plan than uh, we did in closing the gaps. And the next plan has to be more comprehensive. And we have to take a look at uh, broader groups of people than we, than we did in closing the gaps. We have to target, for example, those students who have achieved, say, 60 or 90 hours of college credit but are never graduated. And we've got to find a way to bring them back to our institutions and get them to complete some form of credential. We're going to have to do a better job with adult basic education and making sure that we uh, uh, direct some of those individuals into uh, career and technical education programs and get them jobs that pay a decent living wage. Uh, we're going to have to uh, uh, make sure that students have discernible, identifiable, uh, market marketable skills when they graduate from our colleges and universities. To me, the question is whether we it is not whether we have too many English majors or too many philosophy majors. The question is, do we make sure that those students, whatever their majors are, have marketable skills that they can talk about when they go to a job interview? I also believe that uh, we're going to uh, have to have a closer alignment with the workforce, and we're going to have to be more aggressive about meeting workforce shortages in our state's economy, and be more conscious about doing that in higher education. And finally, I think that uh, we're starting to move towards new definitions of excellence. And uh, there was a very interesting article in, uh, in Forbes magazine uh, last week that talked about how the US News and World Report rankings have really done a disservice to higher education and that we need uh, not to uh, focus on selectivity or, or uh, the, the low admission rates that drive up your national reputation and the US News and World Report rankings, but rather focus on bringing um, students from low-income backgrounds, which of course means most Hispanic and, uh, and African-American students, bring more of those students into, the, uh, into higher education and recognize that if we graduate those students, that might well be the clear side of excellence and achievement for our institutions of higher education. Well, and President Garcia, as, as someone who knows a thing or two about yes. educating a Hispanic majority institution population, uh, you know what what could what could we, could we be doing differently to sort of improve those outcomes even more? 
among in the Hispanic population in particular? Well, the a uh, couple of things that would come to mind, but let me just mention that I think one of the most important premises to start the discussion with is the notion of everybody can succeed, right? And high expectations. And the moment we lower expectations for one population or another, we failed them already. And so we um, in the Valley have been very much about raising expectations. So expecting our students to do as well as students anywhere else. The problem often has been a lack of resources to get them there. So I'll run a race against anybody here on the panel, maybe not today, but but another day, as long as I have the same pair of tennis, right, that, that everybody else has and we have some same kind of training. And so resources has been a very important factor for institutions, lack of resources, very often that are Latino majority students in the state of Texas. So having said that, expectations still are, are very high. So um, you have seen the Valley actually counter trend much of what's going on in the state against expect against predictions that we could not not only access students but but graduate them. We've been graduating more and more students and counter trending what that prediction was. So why is that the case? Well, um, it, you know we're Monday. We're about to announce in Brownsville that SpaceX is going to break ground. SpaceX. Is coming to Brownsville for lots of reasons. Um, geography is one of them, and I won't go into the trajectory of the rocket as it goes to the moon and all of that, but that's an important one. But another one was because we had astrophysics students testify at an EPA hearing about uh, how important this was going to be. We have a large astrophysics program. Those students would have left the valley if SpaceX didn't come just as many of our engineers are leaving the Valley that are produced at UT Pan American and have for many years. And so while we have been producing a lot of educated folks over the last 20 years, they've often had to leave the Valley for those jobs. So we haven't, you don't change the nature of a community if everybody who gets educated has to exit in order to get good jobs. So why do people leave the Valley? Often, I think two things come to mind. Uh, one of them is lack of opportunities. We think SpaceX is going to help change that. Uh, but, but one of the uh, opportunities is just jobs, needing jobs. Um, every student on our campus, uh, if you ask them, would you like to have a job while you're in school? Do you need a job while you're in school? We'll tell you, absolutely. We're not producing enough ways to do that. So one of the things that we have proposed is a federal pilot program where it would take Pell dollars and say, I'll give you those Pell dollars because you meet the criteria for receiving Pell, but you must work for those dollars. So why would that be important? Because what we know is that Pell right now isn't working as, as well as we'd like it to be. But what we know is that if a student is working on a campus, in a laboratory, in a tu as a tutor, or in a garden helping maintain the campus, uh, that student's more engaged. That student bumps into faculty more. They're, they accelerate their time to graduation. They drop less courses. They have higher GPAs. So one of the things is to take in our campus, for example, 70% of our students are on Pell. Imagine if I could engage them on campus with real jobs. So we propose that every, everything on a campus be aimed toward getting a student more engaged. And we've taken all of our part-time positions on campus. No part-timers can be hired unless they're student jobs. So now every student, uh, part-timer uh, is now engaged in campus. So taking some of the current resources you have and trying to, to wiggle them around toward a more productive model. The second idea would be also at the federal level, and that's about housing. 
We worry about men not coming to higher ed too. That's a big concern, right? That we have now 60% of women. I never thought in my lifetime I'd be worried about the men not going to school and the women, but, but it is true. And you don't want your men in a country uneducated. You want them as educated as the woman and doing well. But often in our culture, it falls to the man to have a job and to provide housing. And so if they have a job on campus, you might have eliminated that problem, right? I'm working, mom, dad, wife, whatever. So I've got a job and it's on campus. The second part is housing. We cannot produce mass housing in Browns on a campus like in the Valley because we have land to lend to a developer uh, to build their, their apartments just like a UT Austin would. And we have developers that are lining up to want to build those uh, dorms on our campus. So the missing link for us is that we don't have students who can afford to pay their rent in the same way that a developer needs to make their, their costs productive. So we need a subsidy for students to live on campus so that housing's taken care of and the job's taken care of. There's Section 8 housing in the federal government. It's given to poor people. Our students qualify. But I'm not going to go compete against other Section 8 housing in the Valley for the same slots because there's lots of need for them. But what if we had a federal program that was a Section 8-like housing, but just for students on campus? So you're holding them accountable. You're saying you, can't, you can live here if you meet these criteria, but only if you're making satisfactory academic progress toward your degree. So there's a quid pro quo, both for Pell, work on campus, receive money, uh, and for housing. So if you take away the two deterrents that often make the difference in why a student accesses but doesn't graduate, it's often the very basic, essential things of living. I have to have a home to live in, and I have to have a job. So we have to redo ourselves as higher ed institutions in order to deal with a new market. Well, how, how hopeful are you that an innovative new program could get through this current federal government? I, I like to believe that a good idea <laughs> once aired uh, and, and an idea that's, that's really pretty conservative and, and, and reasonable. It's not asking for a handout. It's asking for better use of current dollars and focused dollars toward higher ed. Why should I pay for someone to live in a place that, where I'm not getting any return? But if I pay for you to go to school and live in a place, I've got an immediate return on my investment. So I think it's a very conservative argument and in, and in most cases using current dollars. Pell, Pell dollars are already uh, uh, appropriated. But if I, could, if I could tweak it to make smarter use of Pell, then I think we have a better chance of making it through. Well, and so that's the federal level. Senator Seliger, maybe you could bring us up to speed on what's being done at the state level or what's not being done at the state level that should be to help us uh, close some of these gaps a little better. There's three things, and keep in mind the role of, of state government in this case really is a fiscal role. The, the, you, you've got people like Mr. Hunt who kind of define the future needs of the workforce. It just happens to be engaged in, in higher education in this, in this case. The professionals that tell us how we're going to get there in the educational sense, our job is really a fiscal one, and, and there are a number of ways to get there. Uh, clearly, one of the areas that, that I have, have been most interested in is seeing to it that we have a seat in college or university for every student who wants to go. And when you have 1.5 million people in those institutions and we want that number to grow, got to see to it that everybody has a seat and that's why we're going to look at capital expenditures and buildings 
on college campuses. That question gets kind of complex too when you look at the new roles of libraries and things like that. Um, I think alignment from secondary school to college. One of the things that struck me several years ago is I got the impression that, that, that folks in, in high school were not really talking much with folks in university and say, what does this person need to, be, need to do, have, attain to be ready for college the day that they step on that campus? In the case of, of, of Brownsville and certainly a and a lot of resources go to remediation to kids who are in college, not really ready for college. Uh, community colleges play a huge role there and are, are doing a great job, but alignment is, uh, is a big part of that. And then programs like early college high school and dual credit where young people are, are getting college credit while they're in high school. We have to look at alignment too because they should only get college credit for college level courses taught at the college level. But look at what these do. You can graduate today with, in, in dual credit with about 30 hours, almost a year of college, which is, as I used to say when I had kids in school, it's eliminated the fifth, that fifth year, the victory lap, because kids are going with, with a year. If you look at early college high school, which is one of the few things that I've seen seems to me to be an absolutely unqualified success where young people will graduate, there's a partnership between public schools and, and generally community colleges, not exclusively community colleges. When you look at places like University of Texas, Permian Basin, a young person will graduate from high school with a diploma, an associate's degree, two years of college at no additional expense or almost no additional expense to that, to that young person or their parents. So they only need to occupy that desk in college for two years and look at the expense they only, they get, they're going to end up with a four-year degree and only pay for two years. Things like that, I think, are, 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 are really good. Our role in the legislature, basically, find ways to pay for it. Well, and Chancellor Sharp, as, as you're looking at sort of these ideas or some of these things, obviously you have, uh, as the commissioner mentioned, uh, Texas A&M University and UT are sort of on a different uh, sort of perch than a lot of the other campuses. Are, the salute, are those universities sort of set or... Uh, what is the role of a tier one institution? Are you look, really looking at sort of changes in the regional campuses as you look at where the solutions are going to lie for closing the gaps? Yeah, I mean, the regional, as fast as the state's going, the regional campuses are going to have to play a huge role in it. I, I think it's important if we can take a minute and look at why this stuff is important to everybody in this room and all your kids and grandkids. And that's, and that's simply because uh, in the 1980s, my predecessor, a guy named Bob Bullock, when a, an industry would call him saying, I'm thinking about moving into Texas, they would call him and ask him questions like, uh, what kind of tax breaks can I get? What's the tax rate in Dallas County? All of these kinds of things and what they would wind up paying in taxes. When I was controller in the 90s, that completely changed. I never got a question, not one time from any industry thinking about coming into Texas, saying, uh, what are my taxes going to be and stuff like that. They asked a couple of questions. The first question was, how many 18 to, to uh, 21 year olds live in this place I'm thinking about moving? Uh, because they wanted adequate workforce because workforce has fallen off in other places. And the second question was, what's the education level of those kids? And if you were one of those towns that didn't have very many 18 to 21 year olds, or if you did have them and they weren't very well educated, they simply go somewhere else. We have huge advantage in this state. We happen to have more 18 to 21 year olds 
than any place in the country except for Provo, Utah. And all you got to do is think a little bit about Provo. Uh, and, and, and that is going to be a huge advantage. So how does closing gaps have to do with this? It has to do with this because if you ignore that part that's growing, and, and keep in mind that way over 60, uh, 50% of the kids in public schools live below the poverty line in their state. Many of them are minorities. And if you ignore those kids, you do so at your peril. If you're the richest person in this room, your kids will not stay that way if you ignore that group of people. Because you'll start looking like Mississippi 20 or 30 years from now, no offense for those of you from there. But, uh, and you simply can't do it. And so one of the things that we try to do is really, or for the last several years, is really focus on getting all groups into the system. Uh, we have, uh, three years ago, we had 14% of the freshman class at A&M College Station, for instance, was Hispanic. This year, it's 24.9% uh, and growing uh, and, and through a lot of different things. But that's not the only place the gaps occur. The gaps occur in engineering among women. Uh, the small, tiny percentage of engineers or women in this state, which contrasts to our vet school, 80% are women. They've taken over everything else, but they haven't taken over engineering. And so we're studying that real hard thing. Why is that happening? And we think it's happening because too many kids in high school think engineering is about building buildings and building roads. They don't know that it's all of a sudden morphed into biomedical engineering and all of those kinds of things having to do with healthcare that may be of more interest to young ladies than building roads or building bridges and stuff like that. And so our, our dean, the reason that's important is our dean of engineering, speaking of closing the gaps, believes uh, that we should go make a dramatic increase in the number of engineers because engineers are quite important to the economy. Everybody has always said, every president of the United States, every Fortune 500 company has said, China's producing more engineers, Singapore's producing more, we've got to do this. And so we're moving our engineers from 11,000 students last year to what will be 25,000 students by the year 2025. Uh, and so you increase that engineering by about 1,600 freshmen this year, and the SAT scores, contrary to the pundits, went up 32 points. Uh, and it, much of it was because we really worked hard at recruiting uh, girls in high school to become engineers. The second thing that, that has to happen, I think, is we have to focus on getting the graduation rate up as Senator Seliger was talking about. Because you have to keep in mind that if you take that extra year in college, that probably means that some kid in Brownsville is not going to get in school. It's not just a, a victory lap for you and something that's fun. Somebody else is not going to be able to have a slot at Texas A&M or University of Texas or wherever because you took that victory lap. And so our counseling has to be much better than it is. We changed engineering to where you come as a freshman and you're not an aerospace engineer, you're not a mechanical engineer, you're an engineer. And then you decide when you're a sophomore oh, what, what, what that stuff is going to be. What I think the next step that we have to do and the part that we're missing, which I think the Woody's committee is addressing, is we have to look at right now we've been you know, we're worried about getting, getting folks in, uh, making it inclusive, making it look like the rest of the state, so that all you know everybody shares in in in, in what this great state of Texas is. 
but we've been depending on the market to kind of let students decide where to go. And we need to start looking 10 and 20 and 30 years from now and saying, what is engineering going to look like? What is business going to look like? What do the employers want? And not just in the universities, but also in development of workforce. For instance, we do a lot of stuff with Blinn College in developing people for the biopharmaceutical stuff that we're doing outside of A&M. And it has to be, you know, for some reason, we've got this deal where universities and community colleges are all separate deals. Uh, they're not separate deals. Our, our, you will see our engineering school go moving into community colleges with our professors uh, and teaching kids and, and moving them into A&M and using those regionals uh, to do the same thing, too. But we've, we've got to do a better job of, of, you know, now that we're starting to address some of the inclusive things and those that part of closing a gap, the other gap is, are we producing folks that the workforce needs? And will we do that 20 years from now? And we need to start thinking about that right now. Well, Dr. Garcia has some experience with the combined university and community college. They're not always separate, I guess. They are now. But is that, is that a solution to integrate those more? It's very important. Maybe to stop that model is, is the model, but, but certainly I think what, uh, what, what has been brought up is very important. Um, what we know is that if you take a community college associate degree graduate, that that student uh, has 90% plus probability of getting their baccalaureate degree. There's no risk in taking that associate degree graduate. Why? Because they've already filtered out all the students that aren't focused or just got there because if they wanted some, some other kind of certificate training or media. So students that get that associate degree and come to apply to universities, in my opinion, should have automatic admissions. They should be, they, they already are, 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 the risk has been taken by the community college. The student has proven themselves and the data would, would, would show that they have prepared themselves adequately to do the work at a university. So I think a, a university needs to rethink how it communicates with community colleges a, a, as well. We don't do that holistically as a, as a school. When, when you were mentioning that in um, uh, the concern that Woody, you mentioned in the year 2000 and, and that um, Raymond mentioned also, we were thinking of this, of course, in, 19, in, the, in the year uh, 2090, when we were thinking about 1990, we were worried about the turn of the century. And the prediction in 1990 was the same that we're worried about today, that the new jobs that were going to be coming up in the new century were going to require higher education degrees, baccalaureate <coughs> degrees. And what worried us about the community college was that only about 17% of the students who start out at community colleges, even though they say they want baccalaureate degrees, actually exit, that's at a very good community college, actually attain the baccalaureate degree. And if community colleges are the the door that's most open for the Latino student and the, and the, and the African-American student, then we're giving them a false start. We're saying, come here and go on, when in fact only 17% of those in the best uh, community colleges will transfer. So what we try to do with our model was to eliminate all transfer barriers and to provide seamless process for moving from one associate degree to the baccalaureate. It worked for students. It was a good model for students. There's no question that, that it streamlined the process and it got more students through. It worked as a business model, no question. We took scarce resources, applied it to the same goal, 
and, and it worked. Where it was always delicate was on the governance side and, and it got shaky and finally uh, we decided to split up. But, but, but the idea, the premise of it was very important and that is that there should be a seamless transition for students who start out in community colleges for often the very right reasons. They're cheaper, they're closer to home, they're easier to access. Um, and, and then we need to move as universities, change ourselves. Sometimes we're trying to change the student. Every industry, every industry in the world today has restructured itself. Communication industry, oil industry, higher ed is the one, you know, we, we wear medieval robes. We're very proud to wear medieval robes. And, but, but we need to restructure ourselves out of the medieval times. And one of the ways to think about that is how we, how we in fact communicate to community colleges what we think of their graduates. Chancellor Shriver, do you have something to add? Well, I was gonna say, that I agree with that 100%. And, and this is something Raymond has been talking about since the first day he got at the coordinating board. We're not doing any kids any favor when they come out of a community college and they've got 90 hours, uh, 20 of which can transfer to another university. I mean, one of the reasons they, that it is at 17% is because they've used up all their GI Bill, they've used up whatever savings they had or used up whatever and can't go. It's lousy counseling. Uh, it's, uh, you know, I, I'm sure it's not because taking all these courses creates a bunch of money for, for college, but we've got to do a heck of a lot better job uh, in, in coordinating that. And I don't know whether that's at the coordinating board, give, legislature giving them the authority to do it, but boy, we have, we just have too many places that have, we've got kids taking too many courses. They think that it's something that's going to get them into a, a, a college or university and they don't find out about it until, until two years after they do it. And it's really heartbreaking for some of these kids. I, I think we want to make clear here that what the role of the community college is, which is truly post-secondary success that is not exclusively defined by transfer into a four-year university. We have increasingly improving career and technical offerings in community college certifications, nursing programs, RN, LVN, and things like that, where people are coming out of community colleges workforce ready if they are not necessarily going to the university. And that workforce readiness defines a substantial success itself. I wanna make sure we're not being too exclusivist there because the, the community college has a pretty diverse role. Well, uh, you know, the term workforce has come up a lot in this discussion. Maybe this is Mr. Hunter, the commissioner, but is it possible for the state to be too workforce-centric as it looks to develop its next plan? Uh, and I'm going to go back a little bit to the 30,000. I'm asking that as a liberal arts major. Right, the 30,000. Yeah, foot level here. And I would argue, no, that we can't be too workforce-centric. I would argue that we actually need a much greater sense of urgency uh, on, on this particular um, uh, point. Uh, if you look, going back to the gaps I talked about earlier, we talked about the gap of the pipeline, we get, talked about the gap in the, the current popul uh, population, but when you look at the population projections for the next 20 to 30 years, uh, the Anglo population, which actually is slightly better educated than the national average, um, is in decline in every age category except over 65 out of the workforce. So uh, over 100% of our growth uh, is minority. Over 90% of that uh, will be Hispanic. So we got these huge gaps. We've got, we know where the we know what the population looks like, but closing the gaps 2015 benchmarked our, our participation against other states, 
We, so we were benchmarking, but we we're benchmarking uh, essentially in our own unique way. So what I would argue for in this sense of urgency that our state political leadership essentially needs to adopt that we're going to have goals for our workforce in terms of their education. Uh, the state needs to adopt those goals. We need to benchmark our, against our competitors, whether they are other states or other countries in a very transparent way. So we need to elevate this as a political issue. We need not to continue to hide it, which I think that we do because our numbers don't look too good. We, we look very good on a lot of the matters that are around uh, competitiveness, beginning back to Chancellor Sharp. Companies, when they're going to invest and create jobs, want to know about the, the, the educational levels of your workforce. We need to, in a sense of urgency, need to lay out those goals that, that our political leadership needs to do that. And then we need to benchmark. And so I can't imagine that the new plan will not be much more centric about workforce. 2000, closing the gaps, didn't talk about workforce. We now need to talk about completion. We had four goals before, participation, completion, uh, excellence, and research competitiveness. We did not differentiate. I would argue that we need to, uh, the other goals are fine, but if we don't have a, a competitive workforce, we won't have the resources for access, participation, excellence, and research competitiveness. I mean, we have to have a competitive workforce to get our share of national income to support all those other goals. So to me, it's a sense of urgency. It's a sense of political leadership being willing to talk about where we're not that competitive today and lay out a roadmap to make us more competitive in a very public way. Well, you as a fellow liberal arts major, you'd be pleased to know that our new dean of engineering has determined that uh, she has, is going to teach them more arts and humanities, more uh, philosophy and things like that, because she believes that there are two types of engineers. There's introverted engineers and extroverted engineers, and extroverted are the ones that look at your shoes when they're talking to you. And she thought she was sort of expanding. I would, I would submit to you that all education is workforce preparation because we expect all members of the public to be productive. And so the fact that you have a more literate or worldly engineer is a good thing for the workforce and that person as, as they become supervisory or, or things like that. It, I don't want to be oversimplistic about it, but all education is workforce preparation. Could I go back to, to the discussion about, um, about the changing demographics in the state for just a second? Um, because when you talk about all of this and you talk about decomposing the numbers, as you said, you finally end up with saying, what's wrong with the Latinos? What's wrong with the, the African-Americans if they're not succeeding as well? And so I think, you know, straight on, we have to, we have to address it. Um, there's, I, I gave a presentation one time titled, what are we going to do with all these Hispanics, right? Because everybody's worried about it. They're it's like, oh my God, they have so many babies. They're so young and they're not getting through education and it's going to ruin our economy. And you've heard Murdoch's, uh, um, lamentations often enough. We all have about what the state of Texas is going to look like if we don't do a better job of this group. I think what, what, what Chancellor Sharp mentions and what I know we've done at UT is to say, I know what we're going to do with them. We're going to educate them. We're going to make sure that we do whatever it takes within our purview. We don't, not to say we have to wait for the state to do it or wait for the federal government. We're going to redo ourselves. We're going to redo how we do engineering at AM and how we look for students and what our goals are for women in engineering. UT System has decided to build a new university, UTRGV, to create it as part of PUP, to redo it completely to better prepare itself 
for how it's going to be looking at this population. And then they've said, and we're going to take the Latino population and not think of them as a detriment model or a or a less than model and say, you know, you come to us with two languages. How, what if I honed both of those languages, honed the skills in both languages and made you then an engineer? Who is not going to hire that bilingual, biliterate, bicultural engineer that now can do uh, that engineering in two languages in two countries or worldwide over a monolingual student. So, so to quit thinking about the deficit model of having a large Latino population. Imagine the day, here's my dream, my fantasy. Imagine the day when the governor of our set, state of Texas will say, aren't we lucky because we have such a large Hispanic population because they're so better prepared. They are ready for those jobs at whatever level they are. They are you know, building our homes and, and, and healing our sick. And, and so I think we have to, we have to sh make that shift um, energetically and vigorously as a state. Well, I'm gonna give, Commissioner, you get the last word and then people can start lining up at the microphones if they have questions. Yeah, I wanna get back to this, uh, this uh, relationship between higher education and uh, the workforce. Uh, we're not talking about engineers. When, the cons when, when people express concern about uh, college graduates, they're not talking about engineers. You're talking about liberal arts majors or talking about social science majors. And um, I, I think we can strike a happy balance between, between having students major in the liberal arts or the social sciences or the fine arts, whatever field they like, and still give them marketable skills. It's important to bear in mind that every poll shows that between 70 and 80% of college students go to college to get a better job. And the number for low-income students, particularly African-American and Latino students, is even higher than that. We can, do, we can do both. I happen to be a good example of that. I graduated from this very institution. My mother said, what are you going to do now, son? And I said, I'm going to go to California and live on the beach, which is precisely what I did. But I found a job in about two weeks because I could write well. I got a job as a technical writer at a, at a company called Space Technology Laboratories, which has now been absorbed by TRW Systems, and I worked on the Apollo program because a, a Space Technology Laboratories built that little ALSEP rover that uh, went all over the moon when it landed. And uh, I knew, because I had some very good instructors who told me, you can write well, and that is a marketable skill. Sometimes it's simply, it's something as simple as telling students what they can sell about themselves when they get on the, on the job market. But uh, we, we've got to, it's not engineers that people are worried about. It's people from the liberal arts and social sciences. My, my people. Your people, <laughs> our people. Uh, well, thank you very much. That is the panel part of our panel. Now we'll move to the Q&A part of the panel. So if you have a question, you can choose a microphone and just approach it. Start with, uh, start over here on the left. Hi, Angela Farley, Dallas Regional Chamber. Thank you all so much for what you're doing in higher education. You guys touched on this a little bit, but just wanted to reiterate. Um, what we see when we talk to our 2,000 businesses that are members is this great concern about students that are coming out with these liberal arts degrees and an increasing concern about intake counseling, particularly as students are looking at higher and higher debt loads that they're taking on 
in undergrad. Could you talk a little bit about maybe new techniques or things you guys are looking at on that intake counseling to talk to, to students and have them see this is how much debt you're taking on and these are the kinds of salaries that are available and the numbers of openings that are available in the fields that you're considering. Thank you. This might be a question for you. Uh, Yes, I think that's good. That uh, very issue is going to be an important part of our next uh, higher education strategic plan, making sure that students get better counseling, making sure that uh, the debt that students uh, uh, accumulate is, is, uh, is something that they could actually uh, take care of once they graduate. But uh, there, there's no doubt that students need to have better information about how much debt they can actually bear and uh, what uh, the job prospects are in their particular majors, their particular areas of interest. So let me speak to the, to the notion of, of jobs on campus. It's one of the reasons I brought it up because often the debt is not related to tuition. We blame debt often on rising tuition, but debt often comes from having living expenses and having an expense when you're not working. So we need to rethink that model a little bit more carefully about how can we make it cheaper for a student to go to school. Providing them a job on campus is one of those. Um, and providing them a place to live on campus is another one of those. It would significantly reduce that and accelerate time, uh, time to graduation. So that's an important one. Another one is the analytics that people are trying. And, and UT system, and I know UT Brownsville several years ago started a new program so that you don't count on an advisor or a counselor because there are never going to be enough of them and they're never going to be knowledgeable enough or be able to use predictive analytics in a way that's best for students. So, so these new models you install just like a student gets something on Amazon and he says, what do you want to be? Here's what you have to take. Here's where you are. Here's where you're going every semester. Uh, every actually could be even twice a semester that more carefully tells a student where they are in the process and how to move to the next um, uh, segment of their, of their uh, um, progress toward a degree. And so it doesn't depend so much on only on advisors, but it depends on a student's ability to understand where they're moving and how fast they're moving. It also says, here's what happens if you continue on your path at this rate. It's going to take you 12 years to get out. You need to, you need to move faster. It also says that here's what the job that you want, and here's how much you're going to make in that job. Helps, it helps predict their pathway that's most streamlined and their end result better. And I think we're doing a better job of, of creating new structures to make that happen. The, the average associate degree, which is a 60-hour program, takes over 90 hours in the state of Texas today. The average bachelor's, which is typically 120 hours, is like 147. So we have a huge opportunity for better counseling to reduce the number of credit hours, which will reduce the debt. Let's go to our next question. Um, Michael Martyr, Department of Physics, UT Austin. <clears throat> So SpaceX is breaking ground in Brownsville. Um, that's something. And maybe it settles a debate that happened three years ago where at least three people on the podium were involved. This had to do with uh, closing the physics program at Brownsville. Um, it was saved narrowly. And perhaps SpaceX would not be opening if it hadn't been. But many other programs were not. All the HBCUs, the historically black colleges and universities, lost their physics program at that time. There's not a one left. Uh, and I think more happened since then. The removal of physics and chemistry from the uh, default high school program in Texas was a huge step backwards in my view. Uh, I'd say we're starting to demolish pillars in which we reached a pretty high point. 
So are we at least going to get back to where we were five years ago? Are we resolved at least to do that much? Commissioner, you want yeah, to take I'll, that? Yeah, I, I think that question was primarily directed to me. First of all, we, uh, uh, first of all, we, we did say the physics uh, program at uh, UT Brownsville, and President uh, Garcia and I worked very closely on that. Uh, it's important to bear in mind that the programs, uh, and, and remember, we closed majors. We didn't, we didn't close departments. Uh, it's important to bear in mind that uh, we're talking about programs that over a period of four or five years that graduated a total of five students. That they started out, that they, they would, we would look at a cohort of 45 majors in one year, and we would look at uh, the cohort six years later, and two had graduated. Uh, so I, I think uh, it, it's, it's important to recognize that universities need to be held accountable for providing, uh, for producing good results. I tell, I tell presidents all the time that we, we applaud institutions that have open admission standards. But you have to graduate, which means that you have to provide the academic support, you have to provide the counseling, you have to provide the tutoring that those students need in order to be successful. I happen to think it's close to immoral if you admit students that you know aren't going to graduate. So I say, Admit students at whatever level of preparation you, you will, but make sure you provide them the academic resources and support they need to graduate. Those programs we closed, beyond any doubt, we're not doing that. Let me just speak to the, not to physics particularly, but, but as, a, as a, a kind of a, uh, an important point to what it takes then to graduate someone and build a program. We have 15 physicists now on our campus as professors. I was at a meeting in Austin one time and someone said, there's a conference going on in, in gravitational wave astronomy, international conference, and someone said, where is it going to be? The first answer was UT Austin, of course. I said, no, it's not in Austin. So someone else said, well, it's got to be Dallas, UT Dallas. No, it's not in Dallas. Finally, the smarter person in the room said, it's in Brownsville. And the response was, why? And so the person said, because that's where the physicists are. Okay. It took a lot of faith to put that, that program together at the very beginning. But now to bring something like SpaceX, it took the governor's office to provide incentive funding. It took emerging technology dollars. It took UT system to get behind it. It took, it took faculty members who had worked endlessly over the years to pull that together and have faith you could do a physics program at, you, at a, at a, on the border in South Texas, who didn't see themselves on the border of anything, but at the epicenter of the Americas, in fact. And so, so it takes a huge number of people to do the big work. And I think whenever we think that it's just one program or one physics program, the chancellor was on the phone with, with, uh, with Raymond Paredes also saying, don't close that physics program. We, we'll, we'll redo it, we'll, we'll work on it, and it did. That scare, made us look more at the pool of students coming to us from high school. It made us dig a little bit deeper. So, so I just want you to know that, that while we take great credit for now having this great astrophysics program, and it is wonderful, it took an awful lot of effort from lots of people to make it happen. Uh, do you want to get in a quick word? Or can just we go a quick word. I, and I have been sort of a staunch advocate of boards of regents and administration of universities ultimately making those decisions. But the coordinating board has, has done a very good job of providing the analysis. 
that, that some programs at certain institutions just aren't working out. The taxpayers expect something, some production for their money. And, 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 and the coordinating board has done a good job of focusing that, that not all programs belong on all campuses if they are not productive. I think we can try to get these last two questions in if we make them quick. We'll start with you. Um, my name is Madeline Haynes. I'm in the Masters of Education Department here. Um, I was a, math, a high school math teacher in La Jolla for three years. Um, and while I was there, I noticed that many of my students, they, they wanted to go to college and they wanted to get themselves an education. And many of them were graduating from that high school, um, not being able to write a one-page paper with any punctuation in it. Um, or lacking critical thinking skills. And they were graduating and they were going on to college and not having any idea of how far behind they were gonna be from, from some of the other students. And I was wondering what your thoughts are on, on why there's that disconnect in, in, some, um, in some cases and how colleges like UTPA and SDC might be able to work with these public schools to um, fix that. Well, um, the, the, the most important determiner of whether it kid gets out of high school prepared is what kind of teachers they've had. And we're producing the teachers. So you really can't blame. You have to kind of start introspectively and think about how, what kind of faculty you're, what kind of teachers you're producing for the school districts. I went to a little school in Los Fresnos the other day, um, and I found out the principal was a graduate of UT Brownsville, and the science teacher was a graduate of UT Brownsville. And from that, uh, five students had been selected um, to go to, to the White House because they had invented an app. Five girls had invented an app in middle school to help a young man who was blind uh, get to class. And they had gotten in in, uh, in a competition at Verizon. Then they rose to the very top. Now that app is being commercialized. This is one principal, one teacher, in one small little school district. So, so if we think leadership at that level doesn't make a difference, you know, I would, I would, I would beg to differ. So I think we have to look uh, more closely at the quality of teachers that we're producing to, to keep that from happening. So I think that's an important part of it. Danny King, who's a superintendent in South Texas, has done extraordinary work in producing college-ready students, early college, high school. He's made the whole district, his whole district, a college, um, um, uh, early college uh, school. We have a math and science academy that we're looking at that we're, for seven years now where we're producing students at 11th and 12th graders at the university. So, so there's lots of models out there that I think we need to continue to, uh, to um, uh, recalibrate. Commissioner, you want to have a quick word? Well, very quickly, one of the things that we have to do over the next 15 years is develop a much stronger relationship and partnership between K through 12 and higher education. I know that's something that Senator Seliger is working very hard on, but one of the problems we have, and there's evidence about this all over the country, the notions of college readiness among high school teachers, the notions of college readiness among university and college faculty are very different. And I say, I make this point to superintendents all the time, that college readiness is fundamentally determined by university and college faculty in first year college courses. All right, last question. Actually, Here we go. Actually, my name is JR, and I apologize for missing the first presentation. And more than a question, I have a couple comments on what was said. So please forgive me. Because are are number, they quick? I'll go through them quickly. Number one, it's not, well, first of all, I should tell you, I'm in a classroom. This is my 44th year, and I teach middle school, high school, and I'm an adjunct professor as well. 
So I'm that link. Um, first of all, besides teaching academics, what we might not be getting our students ready for is the whole academic um, theme. In other words, it's not just can they write a paper, but do they know to come to class on time? Do they know how to take notes? And all those other attitudes that we also have to be teaching to make that link. Because if they are not there, they won't be successful. Number two, my daughter won't give any money to her college. Why? Because the link between the, the community college, as you said, and the, co the college she finished in, the counseling was so bad, she lost so many credits. Instead of building a strong alumnus for any university, now there's an attitude of, I don't even care to support my university because that link was so bad between the community college and her university. Another thing is we need to look at international students, especially in the community college. The number of students in my um, HCC classes are international students and they come from a different place academically as well as attitude-wise. The fourth point is- Is that the last point? Two, one, two, real quick. We ought to look at the link in the adjuncts. We're limiting adjuncts. We're limiting um, what they can do because of the pension plan and all that. You ought to look at that. You've restricted what adjuncts can do. They're strong. They ought to be paid better, et cetera. They are giving as much as full professors. And lastly, Whoever decided that we should divide 2305 and 6, which are your government classes, you put way too much in 2305, not enough in 2306. <laughs> and as look at the courses themselves, talk to the professors before you make any decisions. Thank you. Reeve, can I say one thing here? And this addresses something the lady who taught in La Jolla and Dr. Garcia were talking about. And it's the teaching in the classroom. And at some point there was some, there was, and you might've been on the, 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 the teaching commission in Texas to address teachers, how do we attract and retain some of our most capable people in subject areas to teach? Half admissions to law and medical school are women. I'll bet you that as A&M grows to 25,000 engineering students, one of the biggest increments of growth there are gonna be in women. How do we get those people into the classroom? And in Texas, they're gonna to have to teach not only the subjects, but they're gonna to have to have multilingual capability too. Teaching is gonna be a huge issue in the future. All right, Mr. Helm, will give you the last word. I'd just like to leave the, the audience with the, the final data point here. If you're a family, if you're a student in a family and you're in the top 25% the income bracket, you've got an 80% completion rate. If you're in the bottom 25%, you've got a, in terms of higher education, you've got a 10% completion rate. This state, the top quartile is heavily dominated by the Anglo population and the bottom quartile is heavily dominated by Latino and African American. To me, that's the elephant in the room. We can't close between a 10 and an 80% without some type of intervention, which is essentially an Anglo population being willing to invest in largely a Latino future. All right, Julia Garcia, Woody Hunt, Kel Seliger, John Sharp, and Ramey Paredes, thank you for joining us. Thanks for coming. Stay tuned. We have another panel on the completion crisis coming up in just a bit. We'll do a quick costume change and we'll be back out.